Welcome to the SaaS Product Power Breakfast with Dave Kellogg and Thomas Otter. This is recorded in front of a live studio audience on Clubhouse and broadcast later as a podcast. Our special guest this week is Chris McLaughlin. Take it away. Being recorded and posted as a podcast. Um, our special guest today is Chris McLaughlin, currently CMO at Lumaps, a uh, French company that focuses on collaboration. Previously, I got to know Chris through, uh, oh, bring Timo up on stage, see what he has to say in a minute. Um, uh, Timo, please put yourself on mute once you're up. Oh, you can't join now. There may have been a misfire there on the app, so we'll hope to hear from Timo later. But in any case, Chris, Chief, uh, Chief Marketing Officer at Lumaps. Uh, before that, Chief Marketing and Chief Product Officer, a rare accommodation at Nuxio, a French content services platform. Uh, where I was on the board for four years and got to work with Chris. Uh, prior to that, Chris was at some big names in content management, including IBM FileNet, EMC Documentum. Um, so one of the reasons we invited Chris on the show today was I think he brings some really unique angles. Uh, and those three angles are big company versus small company. Like, you know, when should somebody who's like, relatively few people can be successful at IBM FileNet and go join, you know, a small company and be successful. So we'll talk about leaping back and forth between big and small. Um, another interesting angle Chris brings is he's worked at both U.S. kind of mega vendors as well as now two, if not three, if I'm wrong, Chris, French startups. Um, so, so the angle of how should European companies attack the U.S. market. Uh, and then the last angle is I don't think I've met another person on earth who has simultaneously been chief marketing officer and chief product officer. <laughs> so he presumably knows a lot about how to get product and marketing working together. So uh, with that said, uh, welcome on board, Chris, and we're, we're thrilled to have you. Thanks, Dave. Pleasure to be here. So I got to ask the very first question, French companies, uh, and people will know I'm a Francophile, so this is intended in the best of spirits. Are you a glutton for punishment? What, why? <laughs> what, what is it about working at French companies and working specifically with European companies attacking the U.S. market? Why, why is that a pattern that you've kind of fallen into? What do you like about it? Uh, so, so the very honest answer there, Dave, is certainly not something that I sat down, wrote out a career plan for, and decided that's what I wanted to do. Um, and it was two French and, and uh, one uh, UK, uh, English company. Uh, that was my first one. Um, you know what? Um, so fundamentally, it just boiled down to the fact that um, right now, in particular, um, seeing a lot of really exciting innovation coming out of Europe, um, and uh, seen a lot of new thoughts on traditional markets. So, you know, what I found now, and it's kind of become a bit of a pattern, as you pointed out, is that uh, across these different organizations, you kind of see a common set of challenges, and particularly as they're looking to come to the U.S. market, most of them have the U.S. market as kind of foundational part of their growth strategy. So you begin to develop a bit of a pattern, a bit of a formula in terms of helping these companies get success. And you also, now that I'm on my second French company, begin to realize uh, some of the cultural differences and become, as a matter of fact, uh, really kind of ingrained in, in how they do things and begin to understand it a little bit better, which has been just a real blessing in my career, actually. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, as folks may know, uh, just so everyone knows, Thomas is, a, I believe, a South African, born in South Africa, now lives in Germany, so he, he's our current Euro angle. Yeah, born, uh, and born in England, grew up in South Africa, now live in Germany. So I support the, the Germans at soccer, the South Africans at rugby and cricket, and the English at snooker. That's my summary. <laughs> 
Uh, I'll just do that. I was born in New York, uh, lived in California, and lived in Paris for five years at Business Objects, and, and have worked with European boards. I'm currently on the board of an Estonian company and was on the board of Nexeo. So uh, I, too, Chris, like that challenge of helping companies enter uh, the U.S. market. And, and I guess I want to ask, this is a two-part question, but but because I presume not everyone listening will be interested in that specific challenge. So I'd like to know two things. One, what have you learned from that specific challenge? When, when you try and enter the U.S. market, you know, not starting here, what have you learned that could be good advice for European companies? And then when you take it back home, what advice have you learned that would be good for U.S. companies? That when you look at, you know, the U.S. market from, from abroad, in effect, what have you learned that makes you more effective, whether you're there or here? Yeah, and, and so it's... Dave, what I found it is it's exactly the same challenge in reverse. Um, so first and foremost, and I think it's 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 just a way that organizations need to think about any new market that they go into, which is fundamentally understanding it's different. And you know where I typically see organizations struggle, and it's not unusual when you go into one of these companies to have hit a period where you know, maybe in France or in the UK, they'd had strong growth and then began to move into the US market. And that growth began to slow down a little bit and they began to have specific challenges. And that's typically where I get engaged uh, with organizations like these. And and so number one, m- m- most common challenge I see is, is that uh, the first pass is a lift and shift. I'm gonna take uh, a French team move it over to the U.S., try to do all the same things that I did that brought me success in France and expect that to immediately translate into the U.S. market. Uh, Number two, uh, real simply, awareness. So hard going into a new marketplace, particularly a new marketplace where you may have established uh, competitors who are already in that market who have brand recognition to kind of build up that awareness, build up that recognition. And, and certainly uh, that's a great area where uh, analysts can help um, really help you to kind of get over that hurdle and get some of that early recognition and things like that. So just to kind of sum it all up and try to keep my answers short here, Dave, it's just, you know, what I find is a real recipe for success is to make sure that you recognize you're entering a new market, recognize that attracting global uh, local talent to your organization, getting people who understand that market, understand the nuances of selling in that market uh, is critical to then you being able to kind of adjust your approach to market to be successful in that new market. And anything that you can do to create buzz and awareness uh, and excitement about your product in that marketplace uh, is is kind of critically important to that set. doesn't matter whether you're going from Europe into the U.S. or whether you're going from U.S. into Europe. Uh, and I would say that same challenges would be if I put a bunch of Americans on a plane, dropped them into Paris and said, hey, go, go, go sell, right? Um, it's just fundamentally different. So find local teams who can bring that local knowledge uh, and really help you shape your message to be successful in that market. Who would be, so, so it's a great point. So it's the same challenge in reverse because um, c- it's a great point. Most American companies typically kind of screw up international, right? <laughs> On their mm-hmm. first go, <laughs> it's the, the same thing. Um, what would your advice be? I mean, is it just hire a salesperson? I mean, what, what would you actually say? say? Say you're working with a European company, they want to go yeah. in the US market. W- what do you tell them how to enter? What's the first you know, couple things they should do? So, 
the very first thing you should do uh, fundamentally is know who you are and know who you aren't. Uh, and I'm going to break out my, my Jeffrey Moreisms now, but, but, but in an ideal world, you know what your bowling alley is and your bowling alley is where you have an unfair advantage, uh, where you found a space in the market to incubate yourself. Um, so when I was at Thunderhead, uh, and we were moving into the U.S. market. We had a really unique offering for investment banking. We were going into a market with very large, mature players in that space and who were very well established in insurance and banking, but not investment banking. So it gave us the ability to kind of incubate in that market, grow in that market, and have success and, and build some muscle and mass before we went out and competed with the more established vendors in more traditional spaces. The second thing is, and this is a big one for me because um, so often you find organizations that think, okay, if I hire a salesperson here, you know, I'll immediately get revenue. Uh, and one of the things we found very, very clearly at Nuxio and, and are seeing the same thing here at Lumaps is you have to build territories, right? You have to help your sales team when you hit the ground be successful. So that means, you know, having a agreed and aligned go-to-market strategy, knowing what that bowling alley is, and then really aligning your sales and marketing efforts after that. And I'm a big believer that really, you know, before you start hiring a big sales team, start thinking about how you're going to build pipeline, how you're going to build awareness, how you're going to prepare them to be successful in that territory. Because it's so easy to sit down with a spreadsheet and say, okay, if I hire 10 sales reps with a quota of this and the quota achievement of that, I'm going to get $8 million in revenue in year one. And it just doesn't work that way. What I refer to as the Excel-induced hallucination. Um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> but it's so easy to do. Um, what about... You know, so this room is primarily, we, we talk a lot about sales and marketing because that's my background, particularly in the sessions where I'm the kind of lead uh, prosecutor. But um, what about product? It, it, what would you say, put your product hat on because you're both, uh, it, it's a European startup coming to the U.S. market. What, what, how do you think about product in that equation? So this is probably more of a, a, a timeline evolutionary uh, piece than it is uh, European versus U.S. or anything else. But um, what I find from a product perspective, and this is important when you deal with analysts, but certainly critical when you would deal with customers and things of that nature. I mentioned earlier kind of knowing who you are, right? And that includes your product strategy. And, you know, it, it sounds really simple to say, obviously, your product strategy, your vision should align to your go-to-market strategy. But you find in a lot of circumstances that's not always as easy as it is to say. But the second thing is, and particularly when you're going into a new market, whether you're dealing with analysts or whether you're dealing with customers, is one of the first things they want to understand. Yes, maybe you're new, maybe you're innovative in a market, but they want to understand where you're going, right? And they want to have a clear vision about not just who you are today, but who you're going to be tomorrow, and if you want to be really successful, be able to translate that vision into specific business impacts for the organization. So you're beginning to hear why I think product and marketing should fit so nicely together because it's a combination of having a good strategy and ability to execute on that strategy from a product perspective, but also a good point of view on the market 
and how your product fits the needs of those markets. So to just kind of sum up what I find a lot of times with European organizations and really any startup organization, a lot of initial success, they kind of know what they're doing, they know what their space is, but they've also begun to attract customers. And as they attract customers, the customers begin to pull the roadmap in different directions and we're busy meeting sales commitments or customer commitments. And we kind of lose the thread of our thought on the original innovation that brought us into the space. So part of it, particularly as you're moving into new geographies, is just having a very clear vision and strategy that can be your your, your touchstone and what you return to on the product side, just like the go-to-market strategy is on the marketing and sales side. So I feel like you're touching on a point. I, I call this getting drawn and quartered by your customers, right? Because you, you don't have a strategy. You don't know where you're going. And you sign four big deals that each pull you in a different direction. Um, and it, it's to me, it's a super commonplace occurrence. Um, I guess the, the question for you, I, I mean, do you agree? Because that argument suggests that product's really the canary in the coal mine. You know, that, hey, sales can sell anything. Market can build a web page that says anything fairly easily. But all of a sudden, if you've got people in different markets solving different problems, they're going to start pulling product. And, and in some sense, it's that true. Product needs to be the one screaming that the company's strategy is not focused enough. True, false, thoughts? Uh, so absolutely true. Um, hardest thing... <laughs> So, A, we can talk about entrepreneurs, right? But uh, I find that most entrepreneurs, the, the easiest thing for them to do is say yes, and particularly when you're building early business, right? I need this deal. I'm going to make this commitment to a customer. I, I need uh, to get into this market, so I'm going to add this capability. Uh, but, but, you know, and I hate to be cliche, but the most powerful word in the English language is no. And at some point in time, as an organization matures, and particularly as it becomes more global, right? And now you're going to get a whole new set of customers and maybe a different set of requirements coming from those customers is learning how to say no, learning how to say centered on your strategy. Um, because yes, you literally can find yourself at a point. And I would argue that, you know, this is not just a small organization problem where you have limited resource, but it's a large organization problem when you get to a scale of customer where you're getting pulled in a thousand different directions. And pretty soon you wake up and your roadmap is completely consumed with things that, while they make individual customers happy, don't position you well long-term to succeed in the market. And yes, absolutely, Dave, you can... Uh, position any way you want, you can sell any way you want, but at some point in time, the rubber meets the road on the product side, uh, and your product has to deliver on that. I think particularly for small organizations coming into different marketplaces, the first thing I look at is do they have a good product? Because if not, they're too small and it takes too much time to fix it. Yeah. So, Chris, I have one, one secret weapon. Well, it's not so secret, but I use it called a negative roadmap. And um, basically what you do is you, you write down clearly and concisely in the same sort of tooling, in the same sort of format that you do the positive roadmap, the things you're not going to do. Right? And you communicate this clearly to the leadership team and you agree this together you know, so that you don't, so that it gives you, a, if you like, something of a moat or a barrier against those, those rhinos, those really hot, um, uh, innovative new opportunities that come in from left field, from, from 
uh, from sales, and you you really protect you really protect your core roadmap because that negative roadmap is a clear articulation of what you're of what you're not going to do. So you know, for instance, if you've made a decision you're not going to go into public sector. Uh, you've made that decision in the strategy planning session, but you know, come the 14th of January, a sales guy happens to have dinner with you know somebody at the Department of Defense, and next minute, suddenly you find yourself having to justify why you don't have uh, why you don't have a uh, uh, public sector on your roadmap. And this this negative roadmap is a very good way of of setting a boundary, um, setting a boundary around the around the product. And I think it's. Yeah, maybe maybe one other thing I'd say about internationalizing, especially by going to the U.S. for um, for um, uh, French and German vendors, is um, if you want to to hire top talent in North America, um, you need to be prepared to give them global roles, um, uh, because <clears throat> you won't get top marketing people to be marketing CMO for a subsidiary of a French company. In the U.S., you'll get them to be the CMO of a global company that happens to be headquartered in France, but you won't get a team players um, in leadership roles unless you're prepared to share um, global uh, leadership responsibility with those, um, uh, you know, with those individuals. Um, also, if you're trying to drive partnerships with U.S. vendors, they really need to be driving. They need to be able to speak globally. So if you're, you know, if you're a learning management vendor, or say you guys, you know, you want to, you know, you want to do a partnership with I don't know with Ceridian or Workday or one of the leading players, you're going to be needing to do that as a global global CMO, not as a yeah, not as a North American um, uh, head of marketing. You know, so I think sometimes the the European companies they. They hold on to the leadership positions in Europe, and they don't empower. They don't do a good job of empowering the the the, the U.S. leaders to 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 uh, think more globally too. Great point, Chris. I want to weigh in on both those, and then come back to you with a question. So, so two things, Chris. To weigh in on what you said, one of the things you touched on, which is a new theme for me, which is rights and obligations. Like what does the team owe each other? And I think sales does a great demo of this. Sales knows the team owes them responsiveness to their top priorities. And salespeople are really good at asking for that, right? (laughs) It's a key success factor for a CRO. Customer success people in general are pretty bad at asking for what they need, right? They're nice people. They try to be helpful. They don't want to be imposing. Um, I think customer success needs to be better at saying, you know, this is what we need if you want us to drive adoption and reduce churn. Um, and I think the the point we got to through your conversation was that, in my mind, product now is an obligation. If product is really going to be the kind of BS detector on the strategy, they need to step up and, and scream loudly when the strategy is uh, too unfocused to, to create a meaningful roadmap. Um, so, so I don't view that just as something they could do. I, I now view it as an obligation. Um, you can weigh in on that. That's more just a comment. The second thing I want to ask you a question about is this global roles thing. I mean, you started at Nuxio. You weren't hired as U.S. CMO, right? You were hired as global CMO. Uh, I'd love to get your take on how... For example, either at Nuxio or the other companies you've worked at, you structure that. Because Thomas is right. When they start, every VP, if it's France, they all have a French first name, <laughs> and they all live in France. Maybe they move to the U.S., but, but, but they're, they're not hiring U.S. people for global roles. So I'd, lo- I'd love your view on Thomas's questions. Yeah, and so fantastic, Dave, because I was going to jump in or backtrack to Thomas if, if, if we didn't. Uh, first and foremost, Thomas, absolutely agree on the negative roadmap. I think that's it. 
fantastic tool. Uh, I, I think the implicit thing there, though, is not just from a, a roadmap standpoint, but making sure you have a clearly articulated, well-documented, well-communicated strategy. And you hit both the go-to-market side of it and the product side of it. And I loved your example on federal government because it's a great example of, hey, you know, we accidentally make a decision to go into the U.S. federal government. And the next thing you know, you have 72 different uh, product requirements that come out of that that are pretty much unique to that space. Yeah, the and, joys of uh, FedRAMP. You have yeah. to be FedRAMP certified. <laughs> hey, I suddenly have to have Section 508 compliance uh, built into the product. So there are implications in your go-to-market strategy that will directly impact your roadmap if you choose to stray away from that strategy. Um, but but making sure that that strategy, both on the go-to-market and product side, is clearly understood is also an important part and getting clarity. And I love your suggestion about uh, getting clarity about what you're not going to do. Dave, on the organizational front, and, and Thomas, you're absolutely right um, from the standpoint of kind of attracting the talent that you're going to want in that marketplace means sharing uh, that executive leadership responsibility in the organization. So as Dave said, yes, I came on board at Nuxio, at Lumaps. And by the way, Dave, you're going to love my role at Lumaps because it's marketing product and now partner. So, so it's getting more complex as we go forward. But um, yeah, critical to it, attracting kind of top talent in that marketplace. But also in the thing we don't talk enough about, particularly as we move uh, companies into new geographies and into new cultures or different cultures is that by integrating that leadership team, and it was something that I thought we did a, a pretty good job of at Nuxio, and we're beginning to do it here at Lumaps, really then gives you the ability to kind of sustain that culture into new geographies. If you have all your leadership in France and you have a satellite team, as Thomas kind of described, with kind of U.S. head of sales, U.S. head of marketing, um, but all kind of subordinate there, my experience is you kind of end up with uh, two different companies that are not aligned culturally and probably not strategically either. And, you know, the U.S. team kind of even potentially develops a bit of a bunker mentality because they feel they're not well represented and well understood uh, back in corporate headquarters. And, and I, I guarantee the opposite is equally true. So by kind of distributing that executive leadership team, I think you begin to have representation uh, in different geographies amongst the executive team. And I think you have a much better chance of establishing a cohesive strategy and a cohesive culture inside the organization. And Dave, I'm going to pause there because I think I only sort of kind of uh, answered your question, but I did want to get those two points in. No, that was great. I have to ask a follow-up question on that. Um, so... Um, the bunker mentality, I totally agree. I mean, look, the, the way I think of this one, Chris, is, is, is business objects. We started out with a country manager model. We, we were a French company, and our solution to the problem was to hire very senior people to run countries and, and quite decentralized uh, on the theory that the company was founded by two 27-year-old French guys with not a lot of experience, and it was like, we're going to have trouble hiring senior people and making them subordinate, so let's just hire GMs. 
and we had a country manager for France, and a country manager for Germany, and a country manager even for France itself and the UK, right? So we were in France, yet we had a French country manager, which I thought was a good idea. The problem was, you go to the US and try and hire a country manager, and they look at you like you have three eyeballs, right? <laughs> you can go to Germany and say, we want to hire a country manager for an enterprise software company. They're like, cool, I, I know what it is. So, so to me, the model just doesn't work here for, in addition to the reasons you stated, you can't, the job doesn't exist. There's no labor market. People don't understand what it is. And uh, I think you really have almost no choice to do the more distributed exec team model like you guys did at Nuxio. Th- thoughts? Yeah, I, I actually uh, agree with that, A, because you're right. There, there aren't a lot of people running around who have, have fulfilled that role. I occasionally see, you know, a president of U.S. operations and things like that who kind of fulfills that role. Um, but, you know, good or bad, Dave, I think one of the advantages that we have from a marketing perspective and because of the strength of the tech industry in the U.S., is that to a certain extent, certain extent, I still believe you have to localize your approach to every market, but to a certain extent, we have taught, if you're coming from the U.S. into other markets, we kind of have taught them to understand how Americans message and position. And it makes it a little bit easier uh, to kind of establish, you know, global programs, campaigns, messaging, positioning, and things of that nature. Um, And... The other thing that I think is really critical, as you're, as particularly early, as you're working to establish an identity for the company and a, a clear common message and things like that, is having more global functions just makes that easier rather than having distributed functions that have to go reinvent the wheel uh, in each specific uh, geography. And I think it just also makes it easier uh, to coordinate organizationally between different functions. What, what's your point of view on kind of tours of duty? Like some of the companies, like Nuxio, the CEO lived in New York for a while. Um, I think at Lumaps they've, they've taken some people to the U.S. Is it a good idea, bad idea, neutral? Or what do you think about, you know, because it's clear you support a distributed team model, and the question is do you try and rotate those people around at all, and to what extent? I actually am a huge fan of it. Um, because it is the best way, particularly if you've got like a founder CEO, um, to get educated on a particular market. And as you know, Eric Barocca, our CEO at uh, Nuxio, was a very Americanized Frenchman. And it made, uh, it, it, in spite of still having an accent and, and, and uh, occasionally being difficult to understand, but Eric colloquial English knew the marketplace in the U S understood the nuances of it. And I think it made it much, much easier, particularly for me to, to implement my strategies. And, uh, he really was much more comfortable in that circumstance, giving me free reign. Uh, similarly, um, you know, the, the best, Part of my job, as I said earlier, is dealing with multiple cultures, but also being able to travel all over the world and gain a firsthand understanding of how business gets done in different geographies, gain an understanding of uh, how the nuances of messaging and positioning and the way that information gets delivered in different cultures. Um, So I, I think it's equally invaluable 
uh, for uh, American executives to spend more time overseas as well, too. So I'm going to do a quick re- reset and then ask one more question about international, and then we'll come back to kind of aligning product and marketing. Uh, room reset. Hi, you're in the SaaS Product Power Breakfast, hosted by Dave Kellogg and Thomas Otter. We're interviewing Chris McLaughlin, uh, currently CMO, and sounds like a lot more at Lumaps, <laughs> formerly CMO, CPO at Nuxio, uh, formerly IBM file at EMC Documentum. Um, so uh, now back. So that's the room reset. We are recording the room. Uh, in terms of the final, at least from me, international question, uh, look, you talked about Eric, who, who, who I love dearly, but one of my favorite things about Eric was I spoke at a company kickoff once, I don't know if you remember this story, but at the end of the kickoff, I said, hey, if anyone wants to speak French to me, I kind of speak passable social French, so if you're uncomfortable asking in English... Uh, you know, feel free to talk to me in French. And he literally stood up and said, do not speak French to Dave. We are not a French company. <laughs> um, and I'm just curious your point of view on, Eric was super passionate about, we are not a French company. We are an international company. Business Objects was the same way. We called it transnational. In terms of how a company identifies itself, do, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think the answer is that's absolutely vital, Right. Uh, and, and Eric was, you know, in that circumstance, unique company, uh, almost a family business for eight, 10 years before we took outside investment from Goldman and others and really began to scale it up and scale up the U S operations. And even at that point, uh, uh, really before I came on board, a lot of what we were doing in the U S was moving people over from, from France. So it had a unique and very, uh, French culture. And I think if you're going to, uh, you know, kind of draw a line in the sand and, and shift that culture, that's where you've got to kind of establish hard and fast. We, we are a global company. Um, and I think it's equally valuable for Americans in many cases, uh, at least the, the, the stereotype is we're not as well-traveled uh, and not as experienced in multicultural environments. Uh, and I think it's it's really valuable. And I think as we grew at Nuxio and the U.S. team became about the same size as the French team and we kind of got balanced, it was really important to help the American team kind of also understand that it's not an American culture either. It's a global culture. Uh, it's a global approach to the market. And as we began to kind of tear down uh, some of the walls and idiosyncrasies between the two cultures, uh, you end up with a much more cohesive whole, and I believe a much more successful company. Yeah, I'd, I'd confirm. I'd confirm that you know, with my SAP experience, it's you know, it's never, it's never easy doing this stuff, uh, doing this stuff globally. It's 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 it can be, can be super challenging. What I'd what I'd remind the European companies is that, which is different from U.S. companies coming to Europe, you have failed in the U.S. If you're not making more money in the U.S. than you're making in your home country, your globalization has not functioned. If the U.S. market is seven times the size of the French market, so if you aren't bigger in the U.S. than you are in France, you've not done a great job of internationalizing. And and when you go into the U.S. market, you should you should go in with the with the expectation and the accompanying respect of what is what it is to operate in a lot in a very large, very large, competitive but potentially massively lucrative, lucrative market. So to summarize, it's kind of like that go big or go home thing, you know. And and what happens, I think, with a lot of 
companies is they, they a lot of French companies and German companies, they go into the US in the same way as they would go into France or they would go into Germany or they go into Italy. And, and it's a different scale. And if you're going to the US, you, you need to be serious about it. You can't do it in a half-hearted way. If you want to experiment with, with internationalizing, then go to Canada first, you know. But don't, don't do the US on a shoestring because you will not. It's very hard, you know, there's an odd random example, but most examples of trying to do the US on a shoestring, you just, you just use up a lot of shoestring, but you don't get anywhere. I was going to say they end up with a, a successor trying a new strategy. Uh, <laughs> Chris, go ahead. It looks like you have oh, I just was going to, just anecdotally and kind of funnily, also uh, scale is uh, something that isn't always well understood. Uh, I had, uh, and I won't name any names or companies, but I had a uh, new uh, English chief revenue officer at one of my companies who uh, was complaining that the U.S. sales team was not going on enough sales calls. And so I tried to explain to him the size of the territory uh, and, and that it was six hours from end to end. So on his first trip to the U.S., the, the head of U.S. sales asked me what he should do. And I said, I think you should take him on your usual route. Uh, I met him in New York at the end of the week. And needless to say, I think he had a new appreciation for how large uh, the, the territory in the U.S. is, as well as the opportunity. Super smart move. Yeah, I've always thought that Jeffrey Moore was necessary because of the size of the U.S. and the and the clustering between um, vertical and geography, um, and, and that's that's why you say, hey, let's make our beachhead market telecom or pharma put everyone in New Jersey, right? Or make it finance put everyone in New York, right? Or make it entertainment put everyone in L.A., right? And, and it's not entirely true, right? It's a it's a loose coupling, but there never the less is a coupling. And, and by the way, one of the ways I can tell if a company has a vertical strategy is I just get a map and say stick pins in for your field reps. And if they're just in the quote unquote NFL cities, then I know there is no, well, there better not be a vertical strategy because it's not reflected by the pins. <laughs> but if you see all the pins in New Jersey and New York or all the pins in DC, right, it, it does give you an indication. And I think it's very powerful because it, you know, I'm a big believer, Chris, in trying to build businesses, not hire reps. Um, it was a little bit what you're saying. Like, don't just hire reps. Uh, don't just hire a sales rep. But, 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 but how do we build a territory? And, and, and more broadly, how do we build a business, right? Let's build a pharma business. Let's build a government business. Let's, and I just think when you do that, it, it makes everything easier to align. Um, I'm going to just remind folks we're a little bit more than halfway through here. We are. Feel free to raise your hand if you're in the audience. You'd like to ask a question. Uh, I'm going to switch gears now and go back to Chris and talk about aligning product and marketing. As mentioned earlier, Chris is one of the only people I know who's done both CPO and CMO roles. And, and just to get started there, Chris, I'd love to understand how you ended up, <laughs> like how that happened. Um, so here's the here's the funny thing, uh, Dave. I, when I was back at FileNet earlier in my career, um, the way that FileNet was structured was that, uh, and I started in product marketing, uh, was that product marketing owned the roadmap. Um, and as a result, uh, have always had that, that kind of product and roadmap orientation uh, as part of what we do from a marketing standpoint. So it just kind of scaled out from there. And when I left FileNet and went to Thunderhead, uh, my request was that I kept the, the roadmap responsibility uh, because it functioned very, very well at FileNet. And at FileNet, product marketing kind of became that bridge between what we did from a go-to-market 
messaging, positioning, uh, selling perspective, and how we drove our product strategy. Doesn't mean that technology and features and functions weren't important. It just really kind of set me up with an orientation of uh, markets make products, right? Uh, and and uh, again, not to be cliche, but the, the Wayne Gretzky view of things of, you know, skating where the putt's going to be, not where it is. Awesome. So how did you find it, Chris? Because as I understand it, uh, just I'm trying to restock your LinkedIn, but you're like an English major, right? You weren't like a CS guy who wrote programs oh, and, and moved in. How did, was that been hard for you? Has it been an advantage, a disadvantage? Uh, maybe you have more of a technical background that I can get off a quick LinkedIn stock, mm-hmm. but, but what's it been like getting into product and running product uh, where you didn't start out programming at some point in your career, if that's true? Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it's sort of true. I actually was a uh, computer science minor ah. at UCLA, so um, <laughs> I, I and, and so I'm really going to show my age now. But uh, Pascal, Fortran, Cobol. Uh, so trust me, not very relevant skills in uh, today's marketplace. But I but I do have some understanding there. Um, and and the other thing that I did early in my career, David, which was just a huge huge help to me uh, was I actually kind of started in the tech industry on the consulting side and worked for an e-business consultancy. So we did Siebel deployments, PeopleSoft deployments. So that was project management, account management, things that really taught me about delivering to a schedule and having a plan and also just you know, and I, I, I tell my friends' kids this nowadays if they want to get into tech. It, it's just a great training program for how to approach any business challenge, technical challenge inside of an organization. And it really set me up. And no, so when I moved into Fauna and took on a product marketing role, it was, it was kind of a new world for me. Um, but I felt like uh, my background kind of gave me the tooling there um, to, to pick it up. Uh, uh, particularly on the product side. I also was blessed. I had a fantastic director of product management that was paired off with me who could kind of take the big picture ideas on my head and help me get them down into something that was more digestible for a product organization. Got it. So what, I'm trying to figure out which question. I'll do the simple question first. When do you think, uh, because we have a lot of startups in relatively early phase in our audience, one of the questions they wrestle with is, when do I hire my first chief product officer and or chief marketing officer? And having been around a lot of startups and having done both jobs, uh, what do you think? Um, so uh, first and easy answer is uh, when the CEO is ready, because um, if he's not, that's, that's a difficult situation. Um, and by ready, really, really by ready, what I mean is when... Uh, they recognize and the startup organized organization recognizes it needs to make a change. And that can be uh, proactive, right? So at Nuxio, we got to a point uh, where we had taken outside investment, recognized that we really wanted to get serious about growing and scaling in the U.S. market, as, as, as Thomas pointed out, and that that was going to be the growth engine for the company. Uh, and so it was really about, hey, we need to kind of shift this model from uh, kind of an interesting open source, you know, 
40, 50 K ARR model to a true enterprise SaaS model. Uh, and we really want to penetrate the U S and really want to think about how to make the U S our growth engine. Uh, or that can be, we wake up and realize that, that kind of our growth trajectory has gotten off track and that we can't keep doing things the way that we originally do things. And, you know, uh, we, we kind of touched on this earlier, but organizations, all organizations are kind of creatures of habit, right? If something works, we do more of it. If something doesn't work, we do less of it. But sometimes as you begin to shift geographies or as the needs of your market change or other things uh, impact the business, uh, what, what happens is you wake up one morning and realize the things that used to bring you success aren't bringing you as much success anymore. Or a great example right now, you know, we have, we have a global pandemic that just kind of changes the way that people buy, changes their priorities, changes their budgeting processes, and you have to be able to adjust to that as well, too. Did I actually answer so your what question the, there? Hmm. Uh, I think you did. I mean, look, it's uh, what I took from it was when they're ready. Uh, and I think the question was a little unfair because I should have assumed like if it was a technical founder versus a non-technical founder. Because I think one of the, the the actual question, if you want to take a second swing at it, the hard question is when should a product oriented, you know, engineering or product oriented founder hire a CPO? I know part one of your answer is when they're ready, but but. Have you seen, because have you, I don't, I don't know the answer to this question, have you seen a case where, you know, it worked? And because and, and, my guess is most of them do it too late, that that founder will want to drive product too long and, and then get overwhelmed, not pay enough attention to the other parts of the business, right? Do what feels comfortable, right? Because you see organizations are cre- uh, creatures of habits, so are people, right? Like yeah. I'm drawn to the marketing problems, right? You know, product founders are drawn to product problems, but unfortunately when you're CEO, you, all problems are, are your remit, right? So um, ha, have you seen either good stories or anything good to say on that, on that particular yeah. angle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's um, like you said, it's even uh, simpler than creatures of habit, right? It's what's your native skill set. And so I typically find the technical founders, right? And they were, they were the guy that was in, well, in the case of Thunderhead, in the attic above the garage building the product originally, right? They're, they're good engineers. Uh, and they have a new idea for how to do something. And they build a great product uh, based on an initial set of requirements. But you know, you shift from that innovation mode to kind of an operation mode, and particularly now that we are uh, so SaaS-oriented in the way that we deliver products to the market. Um, and uh, usually on the technical side, I find that what begins to happen, and I think we touched on this earlier, is um, that we begin to lose our way from an innovation standpoint and recognize that we don't have a clear view on the market and we don't have a clear understanding, not just of what customers need, but, but, but kind of bigger picture where we should be going. And Dave, I think that the key point I would emphasize here and kind of maybe the, the part of the crossing the chasm moment for, for um, successful startups is I find that it's, founder teams that recognize their limitations and are willing to ask for help seem to be more successful 
than the ones who just get their head down and keep pulling forward and keep doing the same things over and over again. And, um, you know, that's, that's where we bring different perspectives to things. I, when I was at Thunderhead, uh, I sat down with my CEO one day and I just said, Hey, tell me about globalization and localization. And it was kind of a offhand conversation, CTO. Yeah. Kind of an offhand conversation. Uh, but I just said, Hey, look, as we're moving into the U S market, we have ambitions here, here, and here, we're going to need to be able to easily localize this product. And we hadn't completed the globalization work. Now that's not sexy on a roadmap. Um, but it's one of those things. If you're going to be a global company, you better have a good strategy for, and six months later he came back and he looked me in the eye and he was like, Hey, you know, when we first had this conversation, I was kind of, there were a lot of other things I wanted to do. He said, but you were absolutely right. Um, Because very soon thereafter, we suddenly had a German customer. We suddenly had a French customer. I think we even had to think about simplified Chinese. And, you know, when you have to do it under the gun for uh, people in the pipeline versus having the right structure in place, makes a huge, huge difference. So it's just sometimes about having bringing different perspectives to things. And yeah, I typically find that really good founders begin to understand what they do understand and what they don't understand and seek help for the things they don't understand. Awesome, awesome insight. Uh, I know we have some founder CEOs on the call and I think it's super important that the, the basic premise, um, it, don't be afraid to ask for help because uh, you're gonna need a lot of it. If you're gonna build a $100 million ARR company, you're gonna need a lot of help along the way. So why not start now? Um, I think, Chris, one of the things you guys did at Nuxio, which, which I thought was fascinating, um, and you can either answer in the generic or answer about Nuxio as you feel comfortable, um, but, but, but Nuxio was basically what an old school person would call kind of an enterprise content management system or a content management system. Now, because it was more API first and more platformy, the category name had evolved to what I think Gartner called a content services platform. But, but in one sense, Nuxio was a very capable content management platform, uh, CSP, content services platform. On the other hand, you guys did a lot of business in digital asset management, which was really one application, in my opinion, of a content services platform. And I'd love to know, when you guys first thought about that, as you know, Chris, I tended to be binary, like you have to pick, be one or the other. And you guys came back resoundingly and said, no, we have to be both. (laughs) Um, And I'm curious, I mean, a lot of platform companies wrestle with that, right? The technology is a fully capable platform that can be used to solve 10 use cases, but you're doing well in one use case. Do, Do you... Hey, do you think I've characterized that decision correctly? Do you feel like you guys made the right call and why? Okay, so first and foremost, I'm 100% with you, Dave, right? And, and I think we used to joke about this, right? Which is, good God, I would like to be really successful in one and, and let the other one kind of fall by the wayside. Having a bifurcated go-to-market strategy because, yes, we were a content services platform, And part of what made us absolutely unique was the fact that we had such strong, rich media management capabilities. And there was an overlap in that Venn diagram, right? If you start thinking about things like insurance claims processing, and nowadays it's not paper and documents so much as it is, hey, take a picture of accident damage, or maybe I have video, or maybe I have audio. So there there were some definite benefits to the platform of having kind of rich capabilities in both camps. But when you went to market, and, and to your point, right? 
suddenly I'm talking to, if I'm talking about digital asset management, I'm probably talking to someone in marketing and the, the enterprise content management content services guys probably never talked to marketing. Right. So I had two different sets of personas. I had two different sets of messages. We uh, solved two different sets of problems and I would have loved, loved, loved to have been able to pick one and really focus all our resource on it. Um, that being said, um, it was more of what really made our platform great, scalability, uh, the API first paradigm you talked about, that low-code approach. So if you kind of eliminated and, 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 and uh, kind of fuzzed your gaze a little bit, what you really saw is two different sets of buyers that were buying the platform for a lot of the same reasons, which was to really have a very facile platform that they could shape to different needs inside their organization. We were not a out of the box solution really for anyone. We were a really strong set of tools that happened to uh, be very good at solving two different sets of problems. Now, what's interesting, Dave, and to get to the punchline on, I, would I do it again? It's a lot of work. But the outcome was, and, and part of what made us really attractive at a point of exit was we were fundamentally different besides just the metrics and the growth and, and the pieces that you need to be a successful uh, exit to get to a successful exit, but also having a very unique story and a unique value proposition that, that kind of represented value to two very different groups of buyers uh, really set us up for success. Uh, in that exit process as well. Do I recommend it? No, but if that's what you have and that's what you are, goes back to really figure out who you are and then, then be good at it, even if in this circumstance it happened to be really two kind of separate, distinct go-to-market. Yeah, so, so we see eye to eye. We have not talked about this previously, but we see absolutely eye to eye on this, which is it was, first, it was a little bit the hand you were dealt, right? Like, like it was a good platform and it was good at digital asset management. It was very hard to shut down one. The, the two businesses were fairly large, so it wasn't like it was 80-20 or 90-10. It was a fairly even split between those two use cases, uh, although the platform use case is really, it's not really a use case, right? But I'll, I'll call it one. Um, but I think the, the lesson I'd try to take for other founders is this is a case where the company truly was a platform. It could do all kinds of different things. It could do document management. Um, it could do content management. You could do any kind of content management problem with it. Um, but it was particularly good at digital asset management. And I think Chris nailed it, which is while it made his life harder every day to try and execute with two sets of personas and two use cases, at the point of exit, it basically opened up the universe. Because if you were selling just a damn company, just a digital asset management company, I'm not sure it would have gone, you certainly would have attracted the same pool of buyers. Uh, and by able to basically have two different value propositions, prospective buyers could see what they wanted to, right? And, and damn people might value it as, hey, I'm buying a damn business. And, and, but platform people could say, wait a minute, I could take this thing and build on it and extend it and support other use cases. So I, I just think it's a very interesting 360 degree perspective. Look, it was harder every day for you to execute. And I think you did really well. But boy, did it open up some optionality at, at the point of exit. So, folks, are there, exactly are there right. questions from the audience? We we haven't had any yet today, which is unusual. And I'm sure there's I'm sure there's one brewing. I'm sure someone's got something, some super smart question lurking in the audience. 
Uh, I see well done, one. Thomas. Simon, uh, the ever the ever present Simon. Welcome. Welcome, Simon. Yeah. Hi, guys. It's Simon from a rather cold and cloudy Johannesburg. Um, yeah, uh, Thomas. It was uh, I was when you were talking about you know starting you know basically having your market your CMO in the US. I was trying to remember what SAP did because um, I know they eventually did that. Um, but they, did, they started off with marketing in heading, uh, headed up in Germany, didn't they? And the reason I'm asking is it does, you know, one does feel a bit like a colonial um, entity when you have to appoint all your senior people in the US and you have to kind of uh, uh, follow, not quite follow, you have to be led by them. Yeah, uh, look, um, what, what SAP did, um, which is slightly different, though, is they, they really did empower the SAP America leadership from early on. And um, they gave them the budget and the support. And uh, if you remember quite early on, um, um, Hasso Plattner uh, moved to Palo Alto and spent you know half his time, probably half his time in Palo Alto. So uh, you had major leadership spending you know significant time you had significant time in 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 North America, and the the you know North American sales leadership became uh, you know became very powerful within within um, uh, within SAP within within the broader SAP uh, context. So it kind of worked pretty much like that. So you know people like uh, Jeremy Coote and so on were 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 really empowered to to do what was right for North America, and were given that. Um, were given that power and that, that the, the budget and the and the headroom to to you know for instance sales commissions in North America were much higher than sales commissions in Germany and um, you know SAP was really able to build you know to build the best sales force in North America at the time by giving that leadership the the the, the space to um, the space and power to 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 do that so that's kind of how SAP did it and I think that SAP is a great example. Of that, the other thing that SAP did very well is um, they leveraged uh, success early on with international customers. So, for instance, John Deere, John Deere Germany did a deal with SAP early, very early on. They're one of SAP's first customers. So, SAP was able to roll on the back of John Deere into North America. Um, um, you know, similarly, they'd done great work with BASF in Germany, and they were able to roll into the BASF operations in, in um, you know, just outside Philadelphia. And that's um, that's think why the SAP headquarters were were in uh, were in uh, Philadelphia at the time. So, so that's one of the things that I think is very clever to do is you you bridge with your customers. You 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 if you're going into the US, then then find your this French example, find your French customers that that want you to be in the US uh, and 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 uh, and use that as your initial as your initial bridgehead. Chris, do you want to do you want to comment on that? Uh, yeah, I actually think that last piece is absolutely brilliant. And by the way, it's it's not a uh, course hard and fast rule that you got to have US leadership. Um, it's just good as you move into different geographies to understand and have perspective on those geographies. But I love that point, Thomas, about kind of having those lighthouse customers that help you kind of uh, bridge that gap across the Atlantic and get you established in the U.S. Uh, certainly, if you have successful global customers in your home geography, uh, that can help you to establish your operations in the U.S. and other remote geographies as well, too. 
This is somewhat ancient history, but I'll just tell you how we did it at Business Objects, Simon. It was a French company. They started out with a kind of very French management team. They then went through a phase of kind of importing people from different countries to Paris. So we kept the team together in one place. That's how I was hired. I moved to Paris uh, to become the marketing person. And they did think that in France, they say, we're not good at marketing, so we need an American marketer. That was their decision. Same with the CFO. So we kind of moved over together at the same time. The problem we had with two things, one, the CEO was not getting exposure to the U.S. market in that way, and two, the expat mortality rate was very high. Um, that, that To get somebody and have them last even a year or two was hard. I lasted five years because I really liked it. My wife is French. But, but, but the model it resulted in a bit of a revolving door team, and then we ended up with the dual headquarters model where the CEO actually moved to California. We had a headquarters in San Jose and a headquarters in Paris, and, and people kind of shuttled back and forth. So, so that's how we ended up. But no, the, the SAS product power breakfast does not officially endorse corporate colonialism. Uh, <laughs> that was not the message. But, uh, but uh, yeah, go ahead, Thomas. Yeah, I was just going to say the, the same thing. Look, every company is you know, kind of different. But I you know, go back to my point that if you want to be successful in the U.S., your main competitors are going to be other U.S. companies rather than other French companies. So, you know, you need to... You need to gear up and 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 be prepared for, you know, a huge, significant competitive battle because, um, you know, it's the most significant software market, but it's also the most the most competitive market with the most sophisticated marketing, with the most sophisticated competitors. So, uh, you know, I have huge respect for, um, you know, European companies that have established themselves successfully in 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 North America because it really is uh, really is very hard. Last point on that before, Thomas, I'm going to let you wrap the room uh, if you want. Or actually, I'll do the first wrap. You can do the final wrap. The, the only, you use the word most competitive market, and, and I think I know what you mean. But sometimes when I hear that, it sounds particularly when said by an American as bravado. And, and to me, what it actually means is it has the market usually with the most competitors. Simple example, at Business Objects, we had a competitor called Brio, and they were hurting us very badly in the U.S. market, and they weren't in France. So, so, you know, the William Gibson quote, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. Well, well, the future was going to be Brio as a competitor, and the U.S. was seeing them first, and it is important to have your eyes and ears, your corporate strategy eyes and ears, seeing this new competitor and responding to them. So, so that's how I think of when you say most competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're coming up on time here. I, I want to uh, – actually, Thomas, I'll let you do the first wrap, then I'll do the final wrap. Any closing thoughts, Thomas, from you? Then I'll go to Chris, and I'll wrap it. I just want to say thanks to Chris, Chris for coming on the show. It's super to have uh, uh, have such an erudite guest and 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 so knowledgeable. And, and really, thanks for coming on the on the show. It looks like I've got the technology working, so hopefully, they will, I'll be able to post this a little bit later. And Dave, as always, you ran a very good job today. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Closing thoughts from you. Uh, just thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here, and appreciate the opportunity. Okay. Well, everybody, thank you for joining us today. We will hopefully see you next Thursday, 8 a.m., for the next SaaS Product Power Breakfast. Um, I'd like to thank Chris. And uh, we'll be sitting down the room in about 10 seconds. Thanks again, Chris. Thanks, Thomas.